Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This podcast contains discussions of child abuse, sexual repression and sexual abuse, suicide, racism, misogyny, PTSD and PTSD symptoms, and spiritual oppression and abuse, including guilt, shame, and fear. In most episodes, we will be mentioning some of these concepts in a general way without any graphic detail. If any of these topics or other triggering topics will be mentioned in great detail, we will let you know at the beginning of each individual episode, as well as in the show notes for that episode. Welcome back to the Leaving Eden podcast. My name is Gabrielle Hawkeye, and I am here with my co-host. Hi, I'm Sadie Carpenter, the world's greatest multitasker. And today I am going to re-traumatize all of us who went to Bible college by explaining to you, among other things, the Seven Baptist Distinctives acronym, which was on a lot of my tests in college. Well, I did not go to Bible college. I went to real college. Shots fired. Oh. Yeah. (laughs) This episode isn't about pedophiles, so I am absolutely certain that I will not be traumatized by this episode, although I cannot speak for our audience. This is one of those episodes where we're going to take something that sounds really boring and explain it in a fun way while Gobby throws shade, and Mm -hmm. I attempt to not fall off my seat laughing. (laughs) I feel like saying that you're going to not fall off your seat laughing is kind of setting the bar a little high, don't you think? I mean, you're funny. I, I guess. You're funny and we're we're performers, like hyperbole. Is but a you got to undersell it. You got to, if you're going to do something, you have to undersell it. Okay. Uh, this is one of those episodes where we take something boring and explain it in a funny way. Uh, Gavi's going to throw shade and I'm going to attempt not to crack a small smile. 
Also, this episode is pretty much trauma-free, which is uh, just great for all of us. Oh, we're going to be talking about some martyrs, um, some slight gory details uh, about martyrdom, but that's about it. So that'll be a nice change of pace. Yeah, um, that's not how I would say this. I would say this episode is going to be incredibly boring, um, and we're going to talk about really boring stuff in a boring way, and so you should listen to it, and it will be entertaining. No, I, it's, and then it's our be episode has that. like three people listen to it all the way through. Yeah. Uh, this episode is about historical content that may be a little bit dry if it was presented by anybody other than us. I am excited for this, though. I love history. I think religion is interesting, um, and I'm going to try to make fun of everybody uh, because because if I didn't do that, uh, you guys would all just be better off reading a book. But before we get into that, I just have to say that the Leaving Eden podcast is a podcast about Sadie Carpenter's life in an escape from the independent fundamental Baptist cult. So we talk about this cult, other cults, religion, fundamentalism. We seek to educate and to inform our audience about the dangers that cult groups pose to society as a whole. We promote freedom of mind, freedom of thought, and freedom of religion. So if this is your first time listening, I would recommend that you go back and listen to episode one of our show, as well as the five-part First Family of Fundamentalism series, just in all of the basics. You can also join our Facebook group, Eden Exodus, and you can join our Patreon, where we have extended and uncensored episodes, and where Sadie has been uploading writing to. So if you want to know what an actual cult survivor thinks of The Handmaid's Tale, you can find that out at patreon.com slash leaving Eden podcast. And I just wanted to say that we appreciate our patrons so much. Uh, thank you, patrons, for your support. It means the world to us that you would think highly enough of us to want to personally help us keep making this show. We love our patrons and um, y'all just make our day every single time. For people who, for whatever reason, are not able to financially support our show every month, um, you may have noticed that we've started including ads in our offering break segment in the middle of the show. We are really excited for this step because making money from ads allows us to give the show the time and the energy that it deserves. We, of course, understand that not everybody can be a patron, but these ads give you something that you can do for free to support us. You just listen all the way through those ads. It's free to you. Only takes one or two minutes, and that supports us and supports the show. Yes. Uh, one last thing before we get into the episode. This is your last chance. If you are a queer person who was raised in the IFB or a similar group, we invite you to share your story with us for Pride Month, when we will be reading listener stories out on the air, because for Pride Month, we are going to be doing 100% LGBTQ-themed content, in addition to this, during Pride Month, we are donating 100% of our Patreon money uh, and our merch profits to the Howard Brown Health Center in Chicago, Illinois, which provides health care to the LGBTQ community. If you've been thinking about joining the Patreon, uh, you can do it for June and your money will go to a good cause. And now that we've said all that, are you ready to get into our topic for today? Yes. So today we are talking about something called the Trail of Blood, which is apparently way less cool than it sounds. I mean, there's martyrs. I think that's kind of badass. Like the, the concept of having a belief that you'd be willing to die for, that's kind of metal. That is pretty metal. But the, the Trail of Blood is really a, a history and theology book. Really, I mean, book might not even be the right word because it's actually just a little pamphlet. It's about 30 something pages. We just released the homework episode where you read Dating with a Purpose. 
And I mentioned in that episode that I like to hang out at the book table after church and read all the books. Trail of Blood is another one that I would have been reading from that table. Yeah. And you know what? Like, I think that if I were 11 years old and I were hanging out at the book table and I saw something called the Trail of Blood, that's something that I would have read as well. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's not It's not really um, written on an 11 year old's level. It's it's deceptively complicated. And it's also or just <laughs> me level. I tried to read it. I didn't know what was going on. <laughs> Um, I, I, but I read it and, and understood it, but also about half of that information was just permanently stuck in my head from childhood to begin with. Yeah. Uh, this pamphlet tells the Baptist version of the history of the Baptist, specifically the independent Baptist. So this is all massively important to understanding the IFB. So like the beliefs behind it, the history, at least we're looking at their identity, at least the way that they understand it. Yes. And I specifically wanted to talk about this book instead of just having an episode on the history of the IFB, because, well, I'm sure you've heard the phrase, uh, history is written by the victors. Absolutely. I have. Yeah. This is the Baptist version of Baptist history. Like you referenced, this book says a lot about how the IFB see themselves, and that is as heir to an unbroken line of faithfulness that goes all the way back to Jesus and the Twelve Apostles, but like definitely not in a Catholic apostolic succession way. We'll get into that. So where are we going to – because like I tried to read this pamphlet and I under, understood very little of it. It, uh, I, I guess I was just missing a lot of the context. So I want to start with some materials from outside – trail of blood. So some modern terms for what makes a Baptist a Baptist and not any other denomination or type of Christian. So there are two separate things that I want to define for you. They're both things that I was taught growing up and also things that I was taught in Bible college. So back in the first episode of this podcast that we recorded like a year ago uh, this week, like literally a year ago this week, I want to say uh, happy anniversary, by the way. Oh, happy podcasting anniversary. Podcast anniversary is that what happy we're going to call? Happy podcast anniversary. We should um we should do an Instagram live on the anniversary of when the first one came out and like get champagne. It'll be Yeah, fun. we should. Thank all our fans. But yeah, in in the so anyway, in the first episode, in that episode there was a lot of defining terms, a lot of like, oh, what's a cult? This what makes something a cult? What this that? The other thing, what is the IFB? What do those three letters stand for? And so in that episode, you mentioned this, that, that the Baptists are going to trace their theological lineage back to John the Baptist, who was Jesus's cousin, um, and that according to them, in th this tradition like continued now for 2,000 years uh, alongside and, and heavily overshadowed by the more popular Christian denominations <laughs> like the Catholic Church or Orthodox Christianity. And while we in America might think of uh, Baptist as a Protestant denomination, uh, they don't consider themselves to be Protestant because according to them, they were never part of the Catholic Church to begin with. So am I, am I remembering that correctly? Yes, you absolutely are. Baptists believe, so they, they believe they were never part of the Catholic Church and you can't protest against something or leave something that you were never a part of. They believe that, that Baptists were the OG and that Catholics split off from them centuries before the Protestant Reformation. And this book lays out that belief in detail. I am not an expert on Christianity or Christian history, but that sounds wrong. Well, kind of the whole thing is that about Catholicism is that, that they say that they are the OG. But before we get into that, because we 
definitely will. I want to talk about two sets of what are called Baptist distinctives. Baptist distinctives are, it means the stuff that Baptists believe differently from everybody else. Okay, so that's great. Okay, because not all Baptists are the same at all. Like, so we've got Westboro Baptists. Those guys are super racist. But then also like a lot of predominantly black churches are Baptist churches. So like the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King was a Baptist minister. So like Baptist, like it's a very broad, diverse group of people that have wildly different beliefs but we got to focus on like what uh, what is like the main thing that makes somebody a baptist right so there's two sets of distinctives one is more theological one is more succinct um the first set is the book the blood and the blessed hope there's um there's a song about this is the song a banger i mean (laughs) i mean it kind of it kind of is it's like an old like bluegrass or country song it's a catchy catchy tune how how does it go? Is it good? Okay, let me see if I can remember it. I believe in the blessed hope, the book and the blood. It goes like that. I... Nah. What? I didn't dig it. Okay, but that's... I'll that, send you a YouTube link. That's a no from me, dog. <laughs> <laughs> well, here's another thing that's probably going to be a no from you. These three slogans also appear on the Baptist flag, which is possibly the ugliest flag in existence okay um hold on because you said that i'm going to google the baptist flag right now go ahead okay wait okay okay wait 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 wait. so the baptist flag literally says baptists on it like not baptist singular baptists plural yeah i guess i mean i guess they figured there's more than one baptist what what is this like (laughs) it's the baptist flag this is a terrible okay like also this flag low-key makes me think of the confederate battle flag but like a shitty wish.com sort of way so i'm not gonna lie and say there aren't similarities but i think personally i think it looks more like the budweiser logo (laughs) (laughs) and this was pointed out that's not a sadie original that was pointed out by someone in a facebook group that i follow yeah we uh don't plagiarize unlike the ifb like pretty much everybody we talk about on this podcast no because like look it's just red and white so like if you're into star wars right so the way i see like the confederate flag the confederate flag is like the logo for the empire and then the baptist flag is the logo for the first order it's like it's just the tackiest flag ever that's all i have to say about it like no like it's it's this flag is terrible it's pretty bad so the red is supposed to be for the blood of Christ, the white is supposed to be for purity, apparently. But enough about the flag. I have to explain, like, what the book, The Blood and the Blessed Hope, I have to explain okay, what it actually is. Yeah. No, can I get one more shot in about the flag? Because okay. this is too, like, it's it's too much for me to, like, see this flag. I'm going to, like, we're going to post a picture of this flag on our Instagram. Everybody's got to see this flag. This flag is terrible. Okay, go ahead. One more shot. Okay. It's worth it. So- I want to know whose job it was to choose a font. So somebody, first of all, somebody made the incredible choice that they were going to have a flag with writing on it, which is just an unbelievable decision. But who did they get to choose the font? And why did that person choose Times New Roman? Like, I want to know, like, I want to find whoever designed this flag and get to know them so that I can truly understand the mind behind that decision. I mean, this is 
utterly wild. But I find Times New Romans, I find the whole look of the thing is really fitting, knowing the people that it's describing. Yeah, but like, I, if you've got a term paper, you know, that's the font for you. But this is your flag. You got to pick something with gravitas. You could also just have symbols like literally every other flag in existence yeah. ever. This is uh, this flag is everybody who's listening to this right now. Stop whatever it is that you're doing. Google Baptist flag. It's hilarious. It's such it's it's a terrible flag. It's like some MS paint. Shit. Like that's it probably was made in paint. <laughs> so when normal Baptists say they believe in the blessed hope, the book and the blood, uh, the book means the Bible, the blood means the doctrine of salvation by substitution, and the blessed hope means that Jesus is coming back. Like, super standard Christian stuff. Okay, but why couldn't they have chosen three colors for that? Why couldn't they chose so that, like, red, that's blood, right? That works. Okay. And then yellow for hope, right? And then maybe black for the book, because black is the color of ink. I don't know, Gavi, maybe all those colors together are too close to a rainbow, and that's too liberal. Yeah, they might have been mistaken for the Belgians. That would be another <laughs> potential problem. Or the Germans. The, the, who is are those? They have yellow. That is the uh, color. Yeah, red, gold, and black is the German flag too. I think. And the Belgian flag. The Belgian flag is and the German flag are the same, but one has horizontal stripes and one has vertical stripes. Germany's vertical. The, I'm pretty sure. No, Germany is horizontal. Belgium is, is vertical. See, I thought I would call it out, and then as I was saying it, I was like, "Oh, I'm definitely going to be wrong because I'm making an assertion." You're, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Are we done with the flag? The, yeah, the colors might be Are in a good? different order, too. Yeah, we, we're okay. fine. We can move on from the flag. I'm sorry. I had to clown that flag. It's so terrible. It's hilarious. It's so bad. I said doctrine of salvation by substitution a second ago. Substitution, okay. for those catching up, is the teaching that God requires a blood sacrifice in order to forgive sin. So in ancient Israel, he had his people sacrifice sheep and cows and birds but those were temporary sacrifices until such time as God sent Jesus into the world. Just like the Passover lamb sacrifice had to be without blemish, Jesus had to be without sin. Jesus was crucified and became one blood sacrifice for all people. And because of his sacrifice, his perfection can be substituted onto your account and your sins covered by his sacrifice. So that's that's why the blood, um, you know, salvation by substitution is is pretty foundational to most Christian doctrine, but the Baptists take it super extra seriously. So this is pretty much central to all of Christianity because mm -hmm. there's no blood, there's no sacrifice, there's no salvation. Right. But when the IFB say the book, the blood, and the blessed hope, they mean something a lot more specific than what like most Baptists believe. When the IFB say it, they're more specific. Okay. So let me guess. So the book specifically refers to the King James Bible. Yes. And also, if you think back to the Scop episodes, it's not enough for some Baptists just to believe that the King James Version is the Word of God in English. Baptists will and have split from other Baptist churches over whether they believe a plenary, verbal, or plenary and verbal inspiration of the King James Version. Even just over the way that they define the terms plenary or verbal is enough to cause churches to break fellowship with each other or churches to split. So... They, they, there's there are levels of specificity specificity i can't say that <laughs> i'm just gonna move on when the ifb say the blood they don't just mean the doctrine of salvation by substitution what they mean is that 
Either you agree with their specific interpretation and terminology of the ins and outs of salvation theology, which is called soteriology. When Baptists say the blessed hope, of course, they're not just referring to the concept of Jesus' eventual return to earth, uh, nor or, or the specific concept of the rapture. They are referring to the specific interpretation of rapture and end times theology that they believe about the book of Revelation, the book of Daniel, and other prophetic parts of the Bible, including futurism, premillennialism, and pre-trib rapture. The tie-in for this one is the Stephen Anderson episode, where we talked about how a major sticking point between the NIFB and the IFB is debate over whether the rapture happens at the beginning, in the middle, or at the end of the Great Tribulation. And I know most people hearing this have already heard the Anderson episodes, but I bring it up to illustrate that these points are serious business to the Baptists, to the point that churches would split and people would break fellowship over these things. That's one of the things that the new IFB won't associate with you if you don't believe the same as them on. Really? Okay. So, but like out of all of this theological stuff, out of like a hundred IFB church members, say we're taking the poll of a hundred IFB church members, how many of them do you think would fully understand all of this stuff? Baptists take their theology very seriously. To, to give a percentage out of 100 church members, that really depends on the church and what kind of pastor you have. Some IFB pastors use these things as buzzwords to hype up the crowd. Like they'll say, and I believe in premillennialism, and the crowd will say amen, but the crowd doesn't really, couldn't really describe to you off the cuff what premillennialism is. But for every church that's like that, there's a church like my church growing up. Every summer, my dad would do a series of Wednesday night sermons on some fine point doctrine. So for 12 weeks, it would be all salvation doctrine or all baptism doctrine. Oh, I bet he would love that. I bet he loves talking Yeah, about like people would <laughs> yeah. take, people would bring like legal pads, take notes. There'd be highlighters. There'd be re recommended reading lists. And that's the main reason that I still remember so much of this from literally two thirds of my life ago, because my dad didn't want his church members just believing things blindly. He wanted to show them where he was finding these concepts. Yeah. So having met your dad, I can say like, I 100% like, I, I bet this is probably like his favorite thing to do is like, oh yeah, Wednesday night. This is when I really get to get to talk about all of this detail stuff. Yeah, no, like, I, but I 100% believe that he like explained all of this stuff to everybody in great detail because I'm calling your dad a big nerd. <laughs> my, my dad is an amazing teacher and i'm pretty sure he'd be honored to be called a big nerd a big nerd for jesus again pretty sure he'd be honored he might put that in his twitter bio no yep. disrespect intended whatsoever <laughs> i just i just want yeah. you to confirm right now for our listeners that if our listeners think I go off on deep dives or I, if I get off on very highly specific tangents, that you can confirm for our listeners where I get that from. Oh, Hundo P. Hundo P. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, uh, we've got so we've got the book, the the blood, the book and the hope. And I guess that all makes sense, uh, sort of. But like so if you're going to have a religion, boiling it down to three main points is a great way to make it understandable. But like it seems to me that like all of these things, like they have these three points, but like people believe different things about these three points. So they're like open up to interpretation, I guess. They're open to interpretation, but for Baptists, they're only open for interpretation in one direction. You can't be less strict than standard on these and still associate with Baptists. You can only be standard or stricter 
or a standard or more specific. Like you can't, you can't be less specific or, or less strict. So the other thing I want to go through here is the Baptist distinctives acronym. It's seven points and it's one letter, one point for each letter of the word Baptist. Wait, hold up. So, so they turned their religion into like an acronym? Well, no, because their religion is Christianity. They're, I don't know what to say if I don't say denomination. Denomination sect. Yeah, but that's Baptist. But so they, it, but they turned, they turned their sect of Christianity into an acronym. Is it like an acronym or is it like a backronym where they started with the word that they wanted and then they just came up with words to fit? It's a backronym, <laughs> but it's like a pretty decent one because most of the words fit and make sense. So uh, we're going to jump into it with a letter B. Like, so if you open up like a Baptist theology book, it's going to be like, you need to know these points. And like, it's like an acrostic. If you open up a modern Baptist. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they taught me this in in, in um, one of my freshman year classes at Hiles Anderson. And I'm not, I can't remember which one it was now. That is. Might have been New Testament. Huh. Well, let me give you the, the acronym <laughs> and we'll see how, how you like it at the end. Okay. Okay. So B is for biblical authority, which is the concept that the Bible is the highest and only authority for matters of faith and practice. And as you'll see very shortly, a lot of these, uh, almost all of these are kind of backhanded digs at Catholicism because Catholics believe in a twofold system. So the Catholics believe that the highest authority is the Bible, but that church tradition is also an authority on how we should live our lives. If you ever see a, a picture of a Pope or a picture of Jesus that's Catholic, iconography and they're holding up two fingers that's what that's referencing it's not the peace sign it's the bible and church tradition oh, it's sort of like really? yeah i didn't know that yeah it's not it's, um it's not if you hear like two fingers together it kind of looks like a peace sign but it's not um that's what that is so so think of how th- i know this is not a perfect analogy but it's like how you have the torah and the talmud oh no that makes sense because there's the, written law and then there's the interpretation. Yeah, like thousands of years of rabbis arguing and discussing and fine-tuning the interpretation of the Torah. Yeah. Okay, so I've read off the top I've read that there are some Jews and I can't recall the name of the group, but there are some who only follow the Torah. Is, is this ringing a bell? You mean the Karites? Karites? Yes. That sounds that sounds right. Like Yeah, they, but they're not mainstream. Right. I didn't get the impression that they were. I got the impression that it's like a pretty small sect of Judaism. They're, yeah, they're their own sort of Like their own thing. Yeah. 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 But it's okay. So in this analogy, Catholics and Anglicans and Episcopalians, those would be like the Jews who follow both. And the IFB would be like, how did you pronounce that? The the Karaites. Karaites? I don't know how it's... Or Karaites? Karaites. I don't know. I've only ever seen it written down. Oh, okay. Yeah. So they... Oh, they really are niche then. Okay. Yeah, they're, they're, they're niche. It's not really... They don't really come up that much. So the IFB would be like them, though. Because huh. they only disregard church tradition, like thousands of years of tradition, and only follow their interpretation of the Bible. And then other Christian oh. denominations would fall someplace in between those two extremes. That makes That makes so much sense, though. Okay, well, I'm glad I thought yeah, to bring okay, that up then. Okay. That, like, contextualizing who the IFB are, that makes a lot, like, now that you've said it like that, okay. So uh, I'm going to move on to A in the Baptist acrostic. A is for autonomy of the local church, which means that there's no denominational oversight. Each church should be independent, and church members should vote in a democratic matter on any major decision. 
so the first example that I thought of was when I was about 14 or 15, maybe I could have been a little bit younger. I am really not sure what year this happened, but my church wanted to change the name of the church as part of a rebranding sort of thing. So the church members submitted names and then everybody over a certain age got to vote on which name they preferred. And the church constitution dictated uh, what percentage of members was considered a majority to pass the vote, just like in Congress, where you have to have a simple majority for some things and 66% or a different percentage for other things. No, that makes sense. Yeah. And um, the constitution also dictates whether married couples get one vote or two votes. The church constitution also dictates what age is voting age. In some churches, it's 12. In some churches, it's 16 or 18 or 21 or whatever. And that's that's uh, practicing the autonomy of the local church. Okay, that seems that makes sense. It seems fair. Yeah, like each church is totally responsible for themselves and things should be democratic. Of course, the Southern Baptists have strayed pretty far away from this because they do have denominational oversight. Right now, there is big drama in the Southern Baptist Convention because some churches want to be able to marry gay couples and hire gay ministers and other churches are dead set against it. And the denomination has to make a rule that covers everybody. If those churches were autonomous or independent, then each church would just do their own thing and marry who they consider it's right to marry. And there wouldn't be all this drama in the convention. Can't they just put like send it back to the churches and say, you can decide individually within your own congregation? That's what the Methodist church should have done and didn't. And the Methodist church is probably going to split later this year over this. Yeah, that's what I've heard. Yeah, but like so, but say there was an IFB church that for uh, and this is this is a bizarre and unlikely scenario. But say there was an IFB church that wanted to marry gay couple. I guess they could because there's no governing body to tell them that they can't. Although other IFB churches would probably hear about it and be like, "We're gonna like uh, ostracize ourselves from you and not be involved with you anymore." Yeah, that they they totally could. Yeah, I guess if they were the type of church to marry gay couples, they probably wouldn't be IFB anyway, though. Yeah, they would. They might be independent Baptist, but not independent fundamental Baptist. If a, if a IFB church, for whatever reason, decided to do this, they would get what's called a loss of fellowship, which means that other churches won't come to your events or support you or call you IFB and they'll bad mouth you from the pulpit. Basically, loss of fellowship is the you can't sit with us of the <laughs> IFB. I know it's serious, but that's, yeah, I mean, that's a good. Yeah, that's that's yeah. what that is. So um, autonomy of the local church. But if you do something that the rest of the IFB doesn't like, they're going to shun you or bad mouth you or worse. So, yeah, like lots of autonomy there. <laughs> P is for priesthood of all believers which means that they believe that all Christians are equal before God and that all of us can approach God on our own without an intermediary. This is another dig at the Catholics, of course, because for some reason Baptists have it in their heads real deep that Catholics think that we aren't supposed to talk to God personally and that we have to tell our priests what we want to say to God and then the priest prays to God for you, which is just not, that. that's not it. No. <laughs> that's not inaccurate very very inaccurate uh they also think that we have to talk to we can't pray directly to god but we have to pray to the saints and then they talk to god for us which as previously discussed is not accurate we did a whole 
bit on sainthood and and prayers to saints and the q a episode so so far okay so we have bap so far we are three out of three on legit religion words for our acronym yes yeah so uh we're on to the first t in baptist the first t is for two church offices Mm, i don't Uh, know is that gonna fit with your acronym mm -hmm. specifications uh, the other the other T is also for two of a different thing. Wait, so there's two T's in Baptist, and both of them are not like they're both for the number two. Yes. And it's T is for two church offices. Yes. So we're going from okay, Bible makes sense, autonomy makes sense, priesthood makes sense to logistics. Like <laughs> no, if they wanted it to be two though, like they should have had they should have called the denomination the Baptists, Baptist. you know, or like Baptist written with like a two instead of the T. <laughs> yeah, I was uh, afraid that might ruin your acronym experience. It does, it's terrible. It doesn't work. This is where like this is immediately that is a red flag disqualification. Uh, so your problem with the IFB <laughs> is that they make poor acronyms. Uh, that is a problem with the IFB. And clearly, this needs, this needs to be addressed. <laughs> and have no taste in fonts or suit tailoring. These are the things that you don't like about the IFB. Look, as an aesthetic, IFB aesthetic is bottom tier. That's, you know that's this is fair. true. I've seen the pictures of how you used to dress. Oh, <laughs> oh, buddy, oh, oh that's yeah. not fair. You know what? You were in a cult. I'm not blaming you because <laughs> like present day, as of now, as a person who has since developed themselves a a, a, a post cult life, uh, you have good fashion taste and you know how to uh, you, you your dyed hair always looks good. Uh, I have rarely ever seen you and thought, oh, she you know, she looks kind of tired today. She doesn't look that great. You know, rarely that's happened. Um, you usually look like you know how to dress yourselves. Like okay, okay, you, fair you, enough. You've developed a good taste in fashion since leaving the IFB. So your previous tastes are absolutely fair game. For okay, me to take fair enough. Of. And here's here's the thing. I'm going to throw this out real quick and move on. Um, <laughs> my dad had the most brilliant idea when. So the next time we hit like a massive number of downloads, I don't know when we hit 100k or something. So I still have to drink Mountain Moo from like yeah. a million years ago. But when we hit like 100,000 downloads or something other something else like super awesome like that, my dad says that I should have to go to the store in an IFB outfit. Oh god. Which uh I think would be would be pretty funny. Yeah, we'll take a video. We'll put it on Instagram. <laughs> a GoPro uh, video. God. Okay. People like no put like a GoPro on your head see, like have see what people are saying about like people look at you weird like what is that lady wearing? Um <laughs> So we gotta we gotta we gotta get back to the to the the Baptists acronym. The Baptists. The Baptists. Um. So the two church offices thing. Of course, this is also a dig on the Catholics. Five out of seven. I counted five out of seven of these points are just to distinguish themselves from the Catholics. That's unnecessary. Nobody thinks that they're the same as the Catholics. I mean, apparently somebody did at some point. So, but like, why do they need two church offices? Is this a reference to like, is the two church offices a reference to Jack Hiles and Jenny Nischik having two offices that are connected by a secret door? Because no. that is a weird thing to build your religion around. <laughs> but I guess if you're a cult leader and your MO is to find church ladies to get freaky with, I can totally understand it. 
No, I'm sorry. <laughs> two offices as two offices as in the office of the president. It's not referring to a place. Two types of ordained people, two church offices, pastors and deacons. This one is more misogyny based because there's a list of rules about who can be a pastor and who can be a deacon. And if you kind of squint at the scripture that talks about qualifications for the pastor, if you over-literalize, you can use it to say that only men can be pastors or deacons. So I think personally, I feel like the two church offices thing is more misogynistic than anti-Catholic. This one at least seems the way that you explain it at least seems like plausible to me, but it still raises an eyebrow. The the other thing about this point is that for some reason, people believe that monks and nuns in the Catholic Church are church offices, which they aren't. Church officers are people who help run the church. Those people have no more power in a church than anyone else. Uh, monks and nuns are not part of the hierarchy. But this is just another misunderstanding of Catholic practice. Yeah, see, I don't understand. I don't understand why you would de- define your religion by not being something rather than by like what you are. Because you hate Catholics and you think they're satanic and because also you believe that your spiritual ancestors were murdered by Catholics and you're really salty about it. Yeah, but defining yourself by being in opposition to something is not a recipe for positivity or success. Did I ever mention the IFB being an overwhelmingly positive or successful group? (laughs) No. Not really the buzzwords that I would use. So let's get through the end of this acronym. Um... I is for individual soul liberty, which means that when scripture isn't clear or when judgment is needed to interpret the scripture, each person should be able to make decisions of best judgment for themselves. And this is one that IFB people pay a lot of lip service to, but are very bad at following in practice. You think? Yeah. <laughs> so uh, yeah, we I can think of it. a few examples. <laughs> we almost made it through this, though. Uh, S is for saved and baptized church membership. So the idea that you must make a profession of faith and also be baptized in order to join a church. This one is important because back in the letter A, we talked about how church members are supposed to vote democratically on church decisions. So there should be at least a tiny, tiny amount of dedication required to be a member. And then the other T is for two ordinances, which is baptism and Lord's Supper, which is what the Baptists call communion because communion is too ecumenical and Eucharist is the Catholic word and implies transubstantiation. And the Baptists who can pronounce transubstantiation uh, (laughs) are pretty mad about the whole concept. See, the fact that both T's in like T is the second or third, like most commonly used letter in the alphabet. And both of them are used for the number two. This is uh, unbelievable stuff from the Baptist, from whatever Joe Schmo decided to come up with this <laughs> acrostic backronym. This is atrocious. You think they could have just come up with a big word that starts with a T that means two offices or two ordinances? Of course, the two ordinances thing is a final parting shot at Catholicism. Uh, Catholics have seven sacraments. So baptism, confirmation, communion, confession, marriage, holy orders, and anointing of the sick, which is sometimes called last rites. Baptists think that only baptism and Lord's Supper, which is what they call communion or Eucharist, Baptists think that only those two are biblical, which is a bit nutty because confession, marriage, and anointing of the sick are all clearly mentioned in the Bible. The thing is that they aren't commanded. So God commands or Jesus commanded people to get baptized and God 
where Jesus commanded people to take the Lord's Supper. But so, so confession, marriage, and anointing of the sick are clearly mentioned, but they aren't commanded. So the Baptists think that we shouldn't do them. Mm-hmm. Um, holy orders is arguably mentioned, maybe mentioned, maybe not. It's not clear. Not going to get super into that in this episode. And then confirmation is the one that's not biblical. Confirmation is ancient, ancient Catholic tradition. Like it's, literally confirmation started happening like a hundred years after Jesus. So see, it's not like it's something. It seems weird to me that they're like, oh, well, here's something that they did in the Bible that we're not going to do because the Catholics do it. When at the same time you had that guy, uh, uh, Joe Combs is like, my kids aren't going to learn to read until they're 12 because Jesus didn't learn to read. Well, this just seems wild to me. So they do, obviously, they get married, but they don't see marriage as a sacrament because they think that sacraments are how Catholics believe that we get to heaven, which is just not the truth. Catholics believe that we go to heaven because of grace and sacraments are just ways that we experience God's grace. And from somebody who is married, um, I can tell you that marriage makes you need God's grace sometimes. (laughs) But also marriage is a beautiful (laughs) But (laughs) But on a more serious note... Marriage is a beautiful expression of God's grace. Like I, I absolutely feel that 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 is accurate. But like I no, like I gotta ask. Like, what is this actual spiritual significance of this weird backronym? Because is this actually important, or is this just some like bullshit that Pastor Joe Schmo, Second Baptist Church of Columbus, Ohio, came up with like a hundred years ago and put it in a book? So the <laughs> the acronym, I haven't really considered why it exists before where did it come from it's not spiritually significant because most things are showing emotion or spirituality pretty discouraged in the ifb unless it's about like three or four very specific things the the acronym i think is more of a teaching school i have or a teaching tool i have no idea who came up with it the trail of blood the book doesn't specifically use this acronym but the introduction, it, it pretty much goes through all of these points. So I remembered the acronym for college from college, and I thought it might be a, a easy way to get all that information covered. Okay, so the only thing that I've learned is that Baptists really want you to know that they aren't Catholic, which yeah. I don't think anybody was confusing them with the Catholics before. So um, yeah, in, in case you didn't know that before, Baptists really, 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 really want you to know that they are not Catholic. Yeah, good job. I I know. I am aware of this. But the reason that they really need you to know this is the trail of blood. So the reason I spent so much time building up to this is that the trail of blood, I believe it's one of the roots of the Christian evangelical martyrdom and persecution complex. We talk about this complex all the time. And this teaching is one of the things that supports that and perpetuates that complex. So like six months ago, I asked you something like, oh, when you were in the IFB, did they talk about like a lot about the persecution of early Christians? Like I asked you that. And I assume that that I said yes, that they did. Oh, yeah. You're like, oh, all the time. Because that's a little like nothing is more annoying than a victim complex and nothing is more toxic than a victim complex. Because then you can do anything. If you feel like you're the victim in the situation, then anything that you do is justified. So the IFB believe in a kind of spiritual parenthood. So if you're the person who witnesses to someone and they get saved, you're spiritually like their mom or dad. And if they witness to somebody and that person gets saved, then you've just become a spiritual grandpa. And then they believe that 
that can go on down the line for even thousands of years and that you will get rewards in heaven for all those people down the line from the person that you witness to and then they witness to other people. It's heaven's multi-level marketing scheme. So it's basically like they're playing six degrees of separation, except eventually it takes them back to Jesus. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> wow. So to get That's this, interesting. To get this persecution complex that they have, the first thing they need to do is trace their spiritual ancestry back to people who were persecuted, preferably people who were martyred and tortured for their faith. Why? And because the Baptists want to be the OG Christians, thereby proving that Catholics aren't the OGs, they have to trace their spiritual ancestry all the way back to Jesus. And that's what Trail of Blood is about. So we're going to go and take up the offering. And then when we come back, we are really going to get into this. Hey, it's Sadie. If this is your first time listening to the Leaving Eden podcast, make sure you go back and check out episode one, where we start the whole story. You might also want to check out our cult true crime series, The First Family of Fundamentalism. If you like the show, you can support us by joining our Patreon, where we have extended and uncensored episodes available. You can also join in the discussion in our Facebook group, Eden Exodus. Tell a friend, tell a family member, tell your worst enemy. The Leaving Eden podcast is a fully independent podcast, and we really do appreciate your support. Now, back to the show. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. So we are back. We are playing Baptist Geography <laughs> to try and see whether these claims are real. Now, I, knowing literally nothing about this, when I heard this claim, I found it mighty suspicious. So are my suspicions justified or are they nothing more than pure, unadulterated prejudice? We're going to find out. But let's start with looking at the first three or so centuries after Jesus. So zero to 300 CE or AD. Okay. So these are the days of the Roman Empire. Yes. Pre-Constantine Roman Empire. Okay. So according to Trail of Blood... There were three major shifts in doctrine, three things that caused the early church to fracture during that time, the first 300 years of Christianity. Okay, so can we back up? Because maybe not everybody knows all of this like early history. So the Romans, oh, yeah. the, the Romans basically rule the Mediterranean and like a lot of Western Europe, right? Uh, and they rule over Judea. And that's where Jesus lived. According to Christianity, Jesus is born, grows up crucified comes back 
there's some Jewish revolts or the Jews win, but then the Romans come back, kill a bunch of people, take slaves, burn and loot the temple, take over everything again. Then what? During all of that history happening, because the looting of the temple is in 69 or 70. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I think it's 70. I know I learned that in world history because my world history was super Christian focused. They, they raided the temple. Uh, they stole all of, they stole the menorah in it. Uh, the Pope still got that. It's in the basement of the Vatican. We're trying to get it back. During the time between Jesus death, which occurred in sometime around 29 AD, 11 remaining apostles, obviously not Judas and Others of Jesus' followers spread out across the known world and begin to tell people the gospel, which means gospel means good news. It's the news that Jesus died for their sins and rose again and that they can now go to heaven. So some of these apostles write the gospels, which which is their recollections of Jesus' time on earth. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, or George, Paul, John, Ringo, as previously discussed. So some, some of these apostles write the gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John write recollections of Jesus' time on earth. Luke uh, is a doctor by trade, and he also writes the book of Acts, which is the history of the early church in the first 30 or so years after Jesus died. So they're going, they're not just going out in Judea, but they're going out into like other parts of the Roman Empire. Yes, and possibly even further than that. Um, According to the New Testament, apostles made it as far as Corinth and Ephesus and Greece and modern-day Turkey, as well as Rome. But church tradition holds that apostles or the very next generation of Christian missionaries after the apostles got as far as Egypt, Great Britain, China, and India. So, but, like, I'd never heard that. I'd never heard about the China and India part. So they made it. Okay, obviously, it didn't really catch on in China and India. Thomas is the apostle doubting Thomas. He is the apostle who traditionally made it to India. Thomas also wrote a gospel which is not accepted as canon. And we're going to have to talk about the Apocrypha another time. It's going to be super interesting. A lot of Christians think that the Apostle Thomas did make it to India and that that is why Thomas is now a common last name and other biblical names are used as last names in certain parts of India. So when you say traditionally, do you mean like in Christian tradition, we believe this or is it or is there like more evidence? Like not to say that this is fake or anything, because like there's a lot of stories that are passed down orally and that were never written down initially or at the time when they happened, but that doesn't necessarily make them false. So there's circumstantial evidence, like uh, other contemporary writings that say that Thomas went east, contemporary writings mentioning Thomas in a place that could feasibly be India. And of course, uh, large Christian communities in India and people who have last names that are after the apostles. So there, there's circumstantial evidence. It's been passed on through oral tradition. There is not absolute proof. Some of these Christian tradition things, there's pretty good historical evidence. Josephus wrote about some of this stuff, and I know that he's not 100% accurate, but he's about the best historian that we have from that time. He's about the closest thing to accurate, as far as I know. Other parts have been passed down in written and oral tradition from Christians for 2,000 years. But a lot of this stuff, it's different degrees of we think so. Most of this stuff, there's no way to absolutely prove it. Okay, and during these times, not everyone knew how to read and write. or So oral history was the way that these things are remembered anyway. That's what yeah. we have to remember about like the ancient world is that people didn't know how to read and write. 
And uh, yeah, and another thing about the Gospels is that most of them weren't written until many years after the events that they describe. This is also why Luke wrote the history of the early church. Luke was a doctor, so he knew how to read and write. Matthew, who wrote the book of Matthew, was a tax collector. The apostles who wrote stuff down are likely the apostles who knew how to write in Greek well. The Roman government was not a big fan of Christianity spreading. No, I can't imagine that they would be. Uh, especially because Jesus and his followers started some pretty legit riots in Jerusalem, and that upset the Roman rulers there. The Romans started persecuting the early Christians. Of course, we've all heard of the Colosseum. Yeah, I'll, I know the because my ancestors built the Colosseum. No, oh. I don't know if you know. So, fun fact: that's how Ashkenazi Jews ended up in Europe. The Romans took something like six, like sixty thousand Jews as slaves and put them to work building the Colosseum. And the raw materials to build the Colosseum were paid for with the spoils from the looted Second Temple. And then they migrated north out of Italy into Germany. And then all sorts and all sorts of people were killed in the Colosseum. It's not just Christians, but plenty of them were. Yeah, I mean that's well documented. Right, and it's it wasn't a it wasn't a we hate this religion thing. The way I understand it, it was a more of a political issue. Like they weren't a, like the Romans weren't a fan of Christianity, the religion, but it was it was more it was also political is the way that I understand it. Yeah. Also, the Romans were very they were polytheistic. If they went somewhere and there was a different God somewhere, then they would just be like, oh, OK, well, well, yeah. And sometimes yeah. they would even adopt that God into their pantheon. Yeah, that's what they would do. They'd just be like, oh, okay, well, we'll worship that God too, you know, better safe than sorry. So in some parts of the Roman Empire, Christians had a little more leeway. But in other parts of the Roman Empire, they were hunted down. One guy that the Romans hired to hunt down and kill Christians was a character we've talked about before, the Apostle Paul. Paul was a Jewish man who had studied the Torah extensively. Some people think he was maybe training to be a rabbi and then abandoned that. But either way, he was an educated man who was working for the Romans, finding Christians in modern day Israel and Syria and getting them killed. So according to the Bible, he was riding his horse one day to go round up more Christians when God knocked him off of his horse, blinded him with a bright light and showed him that Christianity was the true way. People see Paul as the 13th apostle. Basically, God wanted there to be 12 apostles, but Judas f***ed up. So Paul was his replacement. Yeah, I I don't like this guy. I get strong Jews for Jesus vibes from him. I mean, technically, you could say he was one of the first. <laughs> um, I'm a fan of him quitting killing Christians because I'm generally just not a fan of people getting killed in general. No, that's not very nice. No, it's not. But I, I can see I, I respect you not being a fan of St. Paul. Uh Paul became an evangelist. He traveled and started churches in Ephesus and Turkey. He ministered to churches in Corinth and Sardis and Philadelphia and Greece. And he also traveled to Rome. Sometimes he traveled there as a missionary to try to get other people to become Christians. Sometimes he ended up in Rome because he was in trouble with the government in Rome and they threw him in jail a couple times. The point is that all these brand new Christian churches were popping up everywhere and Paul wrote letters to them to help them get all, all to help all of them get on the same page. As far as doctrine, because Christianity at this point is a brand new religion. And these new converts in Greece and in Turkey and in Syria, they never met Jesus. So all they knew about Jesus was what other people had to say about him. So naturally, they were coming up with some pretty wacky doctrines. 
there were some people who were trying to crown themselves the next leader of Christianity. There were pastors of larger churches trying to just co-opt pastors of smaller churches and be like, hey, my church is bigger than yours, so I get to tell you what to do. It was very chaotic. Yeah, I mean, that sounds like a logistical nightmare. So he's got so he's got to get every everything straight. Yeah. But wait, so if he's blind, how is he writing down all of these letters? Or does he have like an assistant who has to like read to him and then write down what he says in response? Oh, he got his sight back like a few days after he got blinded. Wait, what? Yeah, yeah. So there was this whole uh, horse incident, fall off the horse, get blinded by a bright mm-hmm. light. Then there were scales on his eyes. And then as soon as he accepted Jesus, the scales fell off his eyes. Have you, you've never heard the phrase like the scales fell from my eyes, like in reference to figuring something out or learning something new? No. Oh, that's a Christian thing, huh? That's got to be a Christian. Okay. Oh, okay. No, you know what this reminds me of? You remember in Monty Python and the Holy Grail, uh, you know, when they've got the woman, they're like, they want to see if she's a witch. And then the one guy is like, she turned me into a newt. I got better. Like, that's <laughs> that's the vibe I'm getting from this. He's like, oh, God blinded me. It's like, well, you can see now. Well, <laughs> yeah, because I accepted you. That, mm. Well, the this point... Is, I'm, I'm sorry if I'm going to come off blasphemous. This seems dubious at best to me. Well, uh, the, the thing is, now I'm not remembering the story as well as I'd like to, because I'm pretty sure he accepted Jesus at the point that he got blinded and then the scales came off when he got baptized or when he was truly sorry for his sins or something. How did like, so wait, if he was out in the desert, right? Mm-mm, so, he was on the Damascus road. And oh, okay. So there's other people coming by and he's like, help me. I've just gone blind. And well, he other was with can... his, like he was with his whole group of like Christian bashers. Oh, he had a crew. He was with the him. captain. Yeah. And he was like, he had like a crew who went and like arrested and killed Christians. So, okay, so there was other people that were just like, oh, okay, what's up with Paul? Oh, he's blind now for some reason. Okay, that makes sense. That makes it more because there's other people around him. Okay, that makes it more believable. I thought it was just like traveling from place to place. No, he was like in charge of a crew. Now I'm not. Yeah. Anyway, the point is that the Christian persecution complex goes all the way back to the first century. There's a lot about it in the book of Romans, which Paul wrote. The trail of blood begins with Christian martyrs under Rome. So, but that's a real thing that really happened, though. Yeah, but don't worry, it's going to get more tenuous. So the trail of blood claims and Baptists believe that modern Baptists practice Christianity very similarly to how these Jewish and Greek and Syrian and Roman Christians did Mm. in like the first century. Applying what mm-hmm. they believe to be moral laws from the Torah, like thou shalt not kill, and discarding what they believe to be civil and ceremonial law, like don't mix wool and linen, purity laws, dietary laws, and blood sacrifices. Uh, Yeah, you know what my theory is about this? What's that? Is that they couldn't keep the dietary laws because potential Roman converts love salami too much. I mean, <laughs> why do you think modern Christians who believe this don't follow dietary laws, but they make their women wear skirts and they also hate gay people? I don't know, man. I find it easier to not hate gay people than I do to not eat pork, even by accident. I don't know. Living in Portland, they put pork in everything, and I have no idea why, and it's deeply unnecessary. Oh, I thought you were going to say that gay people are everywhere in Portland. I mean, they are. <laughs> like, are you, like I, So you said, I find it easier not to hate gay people than I do not to eat pork even by accident. I was worried that you were thinking you were going to hate a gay person by accident. Like Look. worrying that you were going to flip off a bad driver and then you see that there's a rainbow heart sticker on their Subaru. Ah, uh, yeah. <laughs> um, 
But according to the Trail of Blood, the early church soon came upon some theological differences that they couldn't reconcile. We talked about circumcision in the Anderson episode as like how Paul was trying to get these people to stop fighting and just be more like Jesus and be nice to each other and don't fight over like rules and regulations. There were tons of issues, but the ones that started actually fracturing the church were about three main things, autonomy of the local church, and then two different issues related to baptism. And I'm going to focus on the baptism issues for this episode because that's what's relevant to the narrative here. Okay, so baptism replaces circumcision, right? As an issue, yeah. Yeah, so that makes sense because it's very difficult to get people to join your religion as adults if they've got to get their foreskin cut off. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, by the way, oh, by the way, have you told the nice people on the podcast what you thought the foreskin was until you were a teenager? (laughs) You know damn well that I have not. Oh, my God. Oh my god! Okay, don't so, you think like okay, we should put this on Patreon because no. people should have to pay for this information. No, honestly, I don't feel good about keeping that. This story is too funny to uh, keep from our to like put behind a paywall. I knew uh, you were getting. I knew this was going to come back to bite me. Eventually. Yeah, she told me this, and I was I like, "Do this before we had a podcast." This I'm is sure. unbelievable stuff. Uh, like, just I am absolutely flabbergasted by the story that she told me. so i guess we should just get this over with huh oh my god okay 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 okay. so i was told as a child that the foreskin was a piece of skin that men have when they are born but they don't need it so it gets cut off but that's all i was told (laughs) (laughs) i was asking because i was hearing the word all the time because of church because it's the king james bible and it's like literally everywhere and nobody would tell me anything more than it's a piece of skin that men have when they're born but they don't need it so it gets cut off like that nobody would tell me anything tag that's that's kind of yeah I'm just imagining 10-year-old Sadie going to her dad and mom and, like, Sunday school teacher. They're like, what's a foreskin? I mean, that's pretty much exactly <laughs> what it was like. So I read all the Bible verses that I could find about it, and that was zero help. I read about how, like, a bunch of Philistines got theirs chopped off by King David. That didn't enlighten me at all. And I knew, like, I knew, so what, what I could figure out, I knew this was the kind of thing that God told his people to do as a sign that they were God's people. So that led me to believe that it must be someplace visible. And of course, they didn't have, like, the anatomy books in the school library, right? Because that would have oh, been no. a mod, like, you can't have anatomy books in the school library. No, you know the thing where, Not like, even, there's, like, the like, cutaway. Where there's, like, yeah, like, was like, a cutaway of, like, a person's body, and then they, like, you can put these clear sheets over it and see like the the organs or the veins or whatever else yeah it's got like the muscles and stuff yeah so they cut those out of our library books oh so i had no clue they're just like <laughs> i was clueless so you're just asking all that because i know you're asking all the time because you're a 10 years old and b sadie at 10 years old <laughs> yeah so and i was asking around. a lot and kind of getting no answers so in the end, I decided to create my own answer. Mm-hmm. So what I what I assumed was, so we got the prefix for, so for skin, this must be 
a flap of skin on your forehead. Because what I was told was... <laughs> like it goes down, it covers your... It's like a visor. No, more like bangs. <laughs> oh my God. So does it cover your eyes? No, like right, like like bangs, like right above your eyes. Because what I was told was it's skin that he, that a man doesn't need. And that definitely seemed unnecessary. Oh, I mean, that would be unnecessary. That would be highly unnecessary. Although, no, actually, you know what would be? It would be a great like impromptu sleep mask. <laughs> <laughs> well that was so i just kind of assumed that i had solved the mystery and went about my life god so how old were you when you found out <laughs> i'm sorry that's classified information you've done enough damage for one day uh, the first time i told gabby this story by the way i had to draw him a diagram of what i thought this would look like <laughs> so if y'all need a diagram i'll happily put one on the instagram uh, so here's a I'm, I'm, okay. So were you older than thirteen? Oh yeah, yeah. Were you older than twenty? So the first issue is whether baptism okay, okay, is necessary hold, to that salvation. That question. No, it doesn't. The first issue is whether baptism is necessary to salvation. This is called <laughs> baptismal regeneration. <laughs> you know what? Can't regenerate. <laughs> <laughs> So, baptismal regeneration. <laughs> oh, God. I can't even use theological terms around you. It, the question is, is baptism a part of salvation? Or is baptism a different thing? Some Christians believe that you have to be saved. So, call on Jesus, say the prayer, ask Jesus into your heart, whatever it is that you call getting saved well like we did last week like we did last week but then you also a lot of christians also believe that you have to be baptized after that and then then you go to heaven like it's a two-part process uh so remember how we talked about salvation as a transaction it's all about what is the moment that the transaction is complete so you go to a store and you want to buy a shirt when do you become the owner of the shirt is it when you hand over your card when your card is processed or when the cashier hands you re your receipt. When is like, so this is seeing salvation as a transaction. When is a transaction complete? When you pray, when you pray and repent of your sins, or when you pray, repent of your sins, and then get baptized. So like, hypothetically, if you got saved today, and you were supposed to get baptized tomorrow, but you died on your way to the church tomorrow, would you still go to heaven or not? In the IFB theology, of course you would. It all comes down to the verse Acts 2.38, which says, Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. That phrase, for the remission of sins, that is it. Like, like five words, that's what people fight about. Do you get baptized in order to get your sins remitted? Or do you get baptized because your sins have already been remitted? So the IFB look at it as, like, you take... You might take Tylenol for your fever. You don't take Tylenol in order to get a fever. You take Tylenol because you have a fever. So that's the way that the IFB looks at baptism. You get baptized because you are saved, not in order to get saved. Huh. The reason that this is crucial is because it, the IFB and other like hyper evangelicals are looking for the magic bullet, the thing, the transaction completer that changes your eternal destination from hell to heaven. 
because Baptists believe you're born on your way to hell and there has to be something that flips the switch. It's an on off switch. You're going to hell. You're going to heaven. And there, there is a thing that flips that switch, not multiple things, not a process of things, a thing that instantaneously flips that switch and that's salvation. And then you should get baptized, but it has nothing to do with your heaven hell situation. Although it will make you a better person on earth. So, of course, Baptists reject baptizing infants because infants are too young to understand salvation and get saved. The disconnect here is that Baptists and other evangelicals and some other Protestants see salvation as a transaction that happens at a moment in time, while Catholics see it more as a lifelong process that begins at a certain moment in time. And a lot of other um, traditional Protestants see salvation more as a process than a transaction. Hmm. Okay, is it too is it too gross if I use birth as an example? No. So there's a time on Chuck's birth certificate, which is 5.52 p.m. But in reality, was she really born at 5.50? Was she not born at 5.51 p.m. and then born at 5.52 p.m.? Like, technically, yes, but the process of giving birth to my daughter did not take place in one second or even one minute. Like, I was pushing for an hour. I was in active labor for nine hours. I was in labor a total of 18 hours. And if you listen to our episode that was recorded a week before she was born, you would know that I was in prodromal labor for about two weeks. So, sure, there's a moment when before that moment she was not born and then the next moment she was born. But that moment was preceded by a very long process leading up to her birth. Catholics look at salvation more like that. Salvation is a lifelong process that starts at baptism and leads to heaven. So you might as well get your kid baptized ASAP to kick off that lifelong process of salvation. You know, that's actually a really good way of explaining it, especially because Baptists like will call the day that you got saved your spiritual birthday. Yeah. So Baptists are like, I was born at 5.52 p.m. But Catholics are like, well, I was born at 5.52 p.m., but that was the end result of a very long process. Okay, that makes sense because, I mean, we've been having babies longer than we've had clocks yeah yeah (laughs) so back to the history the early church was dividing over these two issues does baptism is baptism part of the magic bullet that takes you to heaven or and is it appropriate to baptize babies and people who are too young to ask for baptism of their own volition and while the church was fighting over this stuff In 313 AD, the Roman Emperor Constantine was in battle when he saw a cross in the sky with the words, under this sign conquer or in this sign conquer. Believing that Christianity would make him victorious in battle because of this vision that he had, Constantine and his mother converted to Christianity, and because he was the emperor, he made all of the remaining Roman Empire convert to Christianity as well. So this is where Christianity really became institutionalized. Yes. And the Baptists will say that this is the founding of the Catholic Church. And that the Catholic Church is inherently corrupt because it was started by a corrupt emperor in search of political power. And to be fair to the Baptist, I mean, this isn't totally wrong. Although, from my perspective, I see Christianity as a religion that was in like created with the intent to spread throughout the Roman Empire. So I see the Roman Empire making it, the emperor making it the state religion. I mean, that feels like the fulfillment of its original intention anyway. Well, Catholics believe that the Catholic faith was already being formed almost two centuries before Constantine kind of stumbled across a good religion for bad reasons. Well, I mean, that would make sense, though, because like a lot of the aesthetics, at least of Catholic ritual, is based heavily on what people think the Jews were doing. Mm -hmm. 
whether or not there's accuracy in that question though right we have uh we have an altar our eucharist is a symbolic sacrifice even the priest's robes are something like what the scriptures describe for priestly robes in the temple yeah i mean so the baptists believe that they're the original but that the catholics got it institutionalized and that changed everything and the Catholics believe that they were the original, that they had a real bad time and made some very bad decisions for a few years, but that they're back on track now. And then all the other Protestants believe that the Catholics were the original, but then they became heretics, so they bravely and courageously left the Catholic Church. But that's a story for another episode. I was under the impression that the Coptic Church of Alexandria was the oldest remaining form of Christianity. I had to look this up to know for sure, but according to Coptic tradition... Their church was started by St. Mark in Egypt in the first century after Christ. So according to Catholic tradition, our church was founded by Peter. After Jesus said, thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, Peter is uh, means stone or rock. So those are conflicting traditions, but both Catholic and Coptic churches claim to be started by first-generation apostles. So that's another, like, I guess it's just another, like, tradition thing. They're just, like, not, you know, they, I guess it's, like, parallel. Yeah. Or two guys start different churches and they just grow in different directions. Huh. Yeah. The next stop. So we have to get back onto Trail of Blood to uh, to explain kind of where this Catholic hatred is coming from on the part of the IFB. So the next stop in the Trail of Blood is the Catholics making a mandatory infant baptism law in 416 AD. And the true Christians being so mad about this because they believed, like I said earlier, that you have to be old enough to be saved to get baptized and you have to do it voluntarily. So, and this makes sense because if the Catholic people or the Roman Catholic at the time, people in charge really truly believed that if you didn't get baptized, you'd go to hell. And if you baptized everybody as babies, that most people wouldn't ever end up in hell. Well, it makes sense that they would pass a law to make everybody do that. I don't think it's correct to pa- to pass a religious law like that, but it's 416 AD. That's what they used to do back in the day. That's what people did. And people got super serious about this religious stuff and they thought it was totally okay to pass religious laws like that. Of course, I, mean, I wouldn't support do. a, a law like that. Do. Right. Yeah. Like, of course, I wouldn't support a law like that, but it like it it's not the Catholic Church trying to be evil and like suck up all the babies and get them baptized it's because they thought that it's very clear that they thought that this was the right thing to do so through the centuries following that 416 ad law non-catholic christians went by many other names because they were legally not allowed to call themselves christians so they went by names like tertullianists paulicians petrobrutians petrobrutians waldenses and most importantly anabaptists they were called Anabaptist because they were re-baptizers. So if someone received a Catholic baptism as an infant and then grew up and wanted to become a Petrobrusian or a Paulician or a Tertullianist or whatever, the, Ana- the Anabaptist would re-baptize that person because they did not believe that the infant baptism was valid. So Anna for re-baptist for baptizer. That's why they were called Anabaptists, which later got shortened to Baptists. And this is in direct opposition to the Catholic belief, which is which is interesting to me. The Catholics believe that any baptism where water touches the skin of the person is valid as long as it they're baptized with, with water, not with any other substance, and the water touches their skin, and they're baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So it can't baptize people in Mountain Moo. You cannot baptize people in Mountain, mountain Moo and have it recognized by the Catholic Church. 
Um, which I, f- I found out when I was researching this that in like Norway, they used to baptize people with beer. And then. Oh, that tracks. Yeah. And then the Catholics were like, no, actually, that's not valid. We have to rebaptize you. Do you know any Norwegians? No, I know a Swedish person. Do you know any Finns? No. It makes absolute, like, knowing it makes absolute perfect sense that they would baptize people with beer. <laughs> yeah uh, i'm pretty sure if it was if it was swedish people they do it with coffee um they take their coffee very seriously apparently it's it, so uh i was baptized in the baptist church as a child and the catholics accept that as valid even though there's a different theology because i was baptized in water and i was baptized in the name of the father the son and the holy spirit so in my conversion process the catholics will not re-baptize me because in their mind i've already been ba- baptized with a valid baptism and it would be heretical to rebaptize somebody who already has a valid baptism it's just unnecessary yeah you got to save that holy water there's a short supply of it actually there, there's like a it's, it's worse than unnecessary it's like a, a sin is not the right word it's like blasphemous huh if you know Weird. yeah if if you so you can there's a thing called the conditional baptism that I read about. It's really cool, but I'm not going to talk about it no matter how much I want to. So all of these kids who are like uh, the bus kids at Hiles Anderson who are like going to like three or four different times to get the candy. That's like heretical. Uh, to the Catholic Church, it is. Yeah, because huh. baptism is a sacrament and you only have to receive it once. So basically, if you get baptized more than once, then you're saying that God wasn't powerful enough to baptize you the first time. But all that to say... The whole point of, like, the first half of Trail of Blood is uh, Catholics are bad. Baptizing babies is bad. It's interesting to me that baptism is the major sticking point that people are ready to split over. Yeah, this also, this is wild. This is just stuff that I did not have context for. Because they were talking about it in the first half of Trail of Blood, and I'm just like, why are they this? I don't think, I think that the reason that you don't have context for it is because I don't think there is a comparable ritual in judaism like correct me if i'm wrong but you have you have life cycle events which are incredibly meaningful so there's a definite similarity but you don't have salvation theology the way that christians do and you definitely don't have the transactional idea of salvation that christians do no i mean we've got you got a bris you've got a, a bar mitzvah but those aren't about heaven and hell or anything because we like not a thing for us those are about like being a member of the community nothing to do with like your eternal salvation right as meaningful as they are there isn't an aspect of eternal destination Mo- so modern day baptists are going to trace their lineage back to these these anabaptists yes even though they don't know the names of any of these individuals in their spiritual ancestry right because this is spiritual ancestry not like actual ancestry this is spiritual ancestry right but all of these people's names were lost to history from about the year 400 CE until the 1300s. The 1300s, that changes because the probably the most important Anabaptist ever shows up, and that's John Wycliffe. Okay, he's the guy who made Hips Don't Lie with Shakira. Right. Oh, wait, I already made, I already made that joke uh, in an earlier episode. No, he's the guy that uh, translated the Bible into English. At this point in history, the church had a translation of the Bible in Latin, the Latin Vulgate, Vulgate from vulgar meaning common. But it was illegal to translate that into a local language. John Wycliffe defied that law and translated it into English in the late 1300s. He was supposedly hunted by the Catholic Church. I I didn't look any deeper into whether how accurate that is. 
but I can tell you for sure he he died of natural causes, but 40 years after his death, the church dug up his body and dragged it through the streets behind a horse. Mm. So he was not super popular. That's upsetting. But yeah. So why is it so why is it illegal to translate the religious text? Is it to keep the text out of the hands of the common man so that the church could set basically they could set extra biblical doctrines and control people's lives and then the people who they were controlling wouldn't have the tool set to know that it was actually wrong. So the church would probably say it was to prevent mistranslations and misinterpretations. The Baptists, of course, say it was a method of control. Like you said, personally, I see um, it was probably a little bit of column, column A, a little bit of column B. Okay. So I remember talking about John uh, Wycliffe's uh, translation when we were talking about the whole uh, King James version contra- uh, controversy and his translation was one of the inspirations for the king james translation is that right yes the king james version translators started from scratch in the original languages but they used wycliffe's work as a reference wait but king james wasn't an anabaptist though because he would have no. he would have been when was that he was in the 1600s early 1600s yeah. so that was after the whole henry the eighth because henry the eighth was 1500s so king yeah. james would have been church of england which, I mean, functionally at the time, I mean, they had bishops and stuff, not they like, you know, the, the archbishop, not the same as like, you know, instead of like a pope. So that like, but functionally and, and uh, at least for the service that at that time, that would have been very similar to the Catholic Church. So it wouldn't have been Baptist at all. No, it definitely was not anything like what we would call Baptist today. King James was really not that concerned with doctrine. He commissioned the King James Version more as a, because you have to remember that this is happening in the first few years after Shakespeare. England is becoming more of a cultural force in the post-Elizabeth I period. So King James wanted the Bible to be translated into English out of pride for the English language. It's like, oh, we have a wonderful language and the Bible should be in our, in our beautiful expressive English language. It was like a, a nationalistic thing. Yeah. And so that's why the, like the King James version, like the, the translation itself is very uh, uh, ornamentally translated mm-hmm. uh, the language you could say. Right. It wasn't a, a, a doctrinal purity thing. It was a, a national pride thing. Yeah. Okay. Um, it, Wycliffe is interesting because from what I can see, he kind of get, claimed by multiple Christian sects as one of their own. Uh, But Trail of Blood does claim him as part of their spiritual line of succession, followed by John Huss, Savonarola, and Zwingli, and then weirdly, Martin Luther, for some reason. Uh, Martin Luther is the guy who has the original Protestant church named after him. So... Yeah, um, I'm pretty sure that he, he, he had his whole Lutheran church was not a Baptist. This That's... is confusing to me because Trail of Blood says that the OG Anabaptists were helpful to some of the leaders of the Reformation, even though they weren't splitting off of the Catholic Church. Mm, I mean, maybe that's true, but that seems like a bit of a stretch for them to claim Martin Luther of all people. That's... Yes. Well, two pages later, it turns around and it says that the Lutheran Church was also persecuting Anabaptists. So I'm not clear on what point 
Trail of Blood was trying to make there. Yeah, I mean, well, Christians have been persecuting Jews for years, even though they've been claiming that they're the spiritual ancestors. So that's entirely possible. Uh (laughs) Well, Trail of Blood also claims just a lot of persecution and just a lot of martyrdom, just just a lot of death. Um, It claims that 50 million of the true Christians were murdered by the Catholic Church during the Dark Ages. Wait, 50 50 million million, which is equivalent to the deaths of the Black Plague. Okay, um, wait, because but the plague, the plague killed literally a third of the population of Europe. Yes. So this is saying over a thousand years. So 50 million. Okay, 50 million people they're saying. Okay. yeah, I want to quote this, though. This is this is an example of the persecution that is given in, in Trail of Blood. This is a direct quote. Along one single European highway, 30 miles distance, stakes were set up every few feet along this highway, the tops of the stakes sharpened, and on the top of each stake was placed a gory head of a martyred Anabaptist. Like, wow, that's... You know, I didn't do this this math ahead of time, but it's 5,600 feet in a mile, right? Approximately 5,680. 5,280 feet. 5,280 feet in a mile. So 50, I'm doing this on the fly, but 5280 feet in a mile, let's say divided by five, that seems like a few feet. Uh, let's see, divided by five feet uh, times 30 miles, that's 31,680 Anabaptist heads. That's a lot of heads. Over cause, so That's they're a saying, lot. They're saying 50 million people. So, so that's if it was every few feet, and I said every five feet, which seems generous for few. So thirty-one thousand six hundred eighty heads. This just doesn't sound right. So I, I've been, I've, I just did some Google research, some very basic Google research, uh, to see if this claim passes the smell test. So I Googled and found out. So during the Dark Ages, which people you know went from 476 AD, which is the fall of the Roman Empire, to about 1000 AD. So in it, we're we're being the most generous to the claim here. So we're saying so at 1000 AD, the global population, the population of the entire world, was 310 million people. So. 50 million people comes out to one sixth of the global population in 1000 AD. Yeah, and they are. So according to Trail of Blood, the Dark Ages was from about 416 AD when that infant baptism law was passed until uh, shortly after 1400 AD when Wycliffe completed his translation. Wait, so they said 416? 416 is their start of it. Okay, so they're calling. Okay, so they they're literally starting because most people start the Dark Ages at when the Roman Empire fell, but they're like, no, the Dark Ages started when the Anabaptist was only, okay. So That's there's that, funny. and then they let it they let it go until 1400 when John Wycliffe, the Morning Star of the Reformation, came around. So they are letting it go just about a, a thousand years instead of more like. 500 it's 50 million people in a thousand years that's still a significant that's a big claim like that's a big claim yeah I'm- and they're not so and they're excluding the inquisition which according to trail of blood was the purpose of the inquisition was to kill anabaptists uh no Okay, so, but uh, like in in 500 AD, okay, right? So I'm looking this up. 500 AD, the global population was 200 million. And like, I know that like a thousand years is a long time to be killing people, but in order like to kill that many people, it would, I mean, it would be like 
just judging on what the global population was, it would be logistically almost impossible. So if you say that it goes for like five, if, if say we're saying it goes from 500 years for 50 million people, that's like 100,000 people a year. If it's a, a thousand, if, if we're saying it goes a thousand years and it's 50 million people, that is 50,000 people a year. So if we're going to specifically look at Europe, because that's where the Catholic Church is during this time, in the year uh, 1000, the population of Europe is 56 million people. And if you kill uh, 50,000 people in one year when the population is, that's one in every 1000 people is killed by the Catholic Church for being an Anabaptist. That is an utterly insane number of people. That is bonkers. I, I like these numbers seem statistically impossible to me. Yeah, I I agree that these seem off, and I'm not disputing that Anabaptists were killed by the Catholic Church. Oh, sure, I'm sure it because, happened. Uh, uh, of course they were. Catholic um, Church killed lots of people. But that that like head on stakes math really stuck with me, and I I thought, well, maybe I'll try to figure out who these supposed thirty one thousand something people were. And I looked online, and I could not find anything from a website other than websites with titles like. Why are we Baptist.com, Anabaptistchurch.com, Baptistthroughhistory.com, so on and so forth. I know that the Catholic Church did kill people who they considered to be heretics. And all I have to say about that is that obviously that was wrong. These are middle aged people who were eating tomatoes off of iron plates and going insane because they ate tomatoes off of iron plates and that will poison you. Clearly, they didn't have access to the knowledge that we have now, and they didn't know that that was wrong, and hopefully we all know better now. Needless to say, we've learned a lot since then. We don't kill people for being heretics anymore. I mean, we don't. So, that being said, I looked into this. I really find that 50 million figure a bit much. And again, I wasn't able to find any kind of historical backup from that for that from a non-Baptist source. I mean, they probably cited Trail of Blood as their source for this. Oh, dude. Oh, oh. Do you do you want to guess how many of these sites that I found heavily paraphrased Trail of Blood or just plain lifted sentences directly out of Trail of Blood without attribution? So they, I mean, I'm sure they don't call it plagiarism. They call it like Christian citation or something. <laughs> meaning uh, you'll get your citation in heaven oh <laughs> like who actually wrote trail of blood um you know what i don't have it right in front of me some super old baptist dude yeah i don't have my I'm, I'm on, on my Wikipedia. other computer I like not we should my... know about that i did i didn't i thought about looking into the guy who wrote it but I had so much else to talk about in this episode it says it's written by somebody who, american southern baptist minister uh, James Milton Carroll, who was born in 1852 and died in 1931. Yeah, it's old. It's old-ish as a book, and then it's been updated by, by other pastors and similar figures. So, Trail of Blood kind of goes. It, it kind of skips out after the Reformation for uh, I don't know 50 years or so, and it says that Baptist came over with, but theologically separate from the Pilgrims. And this, I don't know, this one sort of holds up because I remember that some people who came over with the pilgrims weren't part of their religious group. I don't know. This seems like this almost seems like a, a like an Assassin's Creed national treasure hybrid bootleg, but it's about Jesus. You know what I'm saying? Like, you, you know what I'm saying? Where they're just like, oh, and we were we did this and this and like, yeah. yeah. 
there were definitely Baptists in the colonies. Historically, outside of Baptist history, Roger Williams, the founder of Rhode Island, was a Baptist. And Obadiah Holmes, who was friends with a dude who was friends with Roger Williams, and Obadiah Holmes was also uh, like the great, great, great grandfather of Abraham Lincoln. He has a, an article by the New England Historical Society about him. So I know for sure he's real. He was Obadiah Holmes was sentenced to be whipped by John Bradford, also a recognized historical figure. And then he ended up being whipped so severely he almost died. And then one of his friends was whipped so badly that he did die. Wow. Because of he heresy. But okay. they also burned a lot of women for basically existing as women so yeah for witchcraft or whatever like i to say that they came over on the mayflower with the pilgrims i mean this this seems like a stretch this is almost like the baptists are claiming like a a forest gumpian connection with history you know what i'm saying that's like, kind of yeah that's kind of what this whole thing is this this is very much like a, a forest gump except for that it's it's with with baptist uh it's it's not all completely false sure it's just that it's a bit much to to kind of insert the baptists into every part of world history in the last two thousand years but personally the pilgrim stuff holds up a lot better than the whole waldensies bit who wait who who, who were the waldensies uh the waldensies were followers of peter waldo they were one of those groups of people who were hiding out in the caves in the fields from the evil, evil Catholics during the Dark Ages with the Petrobrusians and the Arnoldians and the Henricians and the Paulicians. Okay, I don't know who any of these people are, but sure. The people who were hiding in the caves, like the real Christians, because the Catholics were in charge. The whole point of this thing is that is, um, Catholics are bad. Catholics have been persecuting Baptists for literally the last two millennia. Also, the Baptists are the true church, and it can be traced back to Jesus. And the long periods of history where you don't see Baptists, it's because they were unnamed and hiding in the mountains for centuries. That's pretty much the point of the book. You know what? That's not entirely unbelievable. It's it's not. But I think there's some larger points because the history here, some of it is kind of bad and some of it is not so bad. But I think there's a larger point. So do you want me to tell you what I see here? Sure. Go for it. So number one, this is going to a lot of links to prove doctrinal purity. The need to be right is strong with these people. I think I've mentioned before how much I felt like it was ingrained into me that I needed to be able to prove from the Bible every doctrine, how I felt like if I couldn't give convincing reasons for not wearing pants or not going to movies that I was a failure. As a child, I mean, I have a lifelong friend. I'm still friends with her on Facebook, but I used to sit and interrupt her recess when we were 10 years old to explain to her why she was a center for wearing pants when she was at home and not at school. And mm. for some reason, she's still friends with me. Yikes. <laughs> it was so overwhelming coming out of that into a world where I didn't need to give a biblical reason for what I was wearing. I felt so ungrounded because I, I no longer had a reason for every single thing I did. And I think maybe this book can give some background on the Baptist obsession with being right and why that's so important to them. It was it was so hard for me to give up that idea of needing to be right about everything every time and to be able to say, I don't know. That was really difficult. And I think this book huh. is enlightening towards that concept. Okay, that is that is such an interesting thing because the, like, the need to be able to say, yes, we have evidence for literally everything that we say and do and not even just like, you know, like, I why do we do that? I don't know, just because... Like, right, like yeah. needing to have a biblical reason and the biblical exposition 
and and feeling that's a lot i mean that's kind of a lot man it's a lot and i I don't really have an issue with adults who want to live that way it's definitely not for me but i don't i don't really have a problem with adults who want a biblical reason for doing things i would definitely never put that on a child i think that's i think that's just a recipe for raising kids who grow up to have ocd and anxiety disorders but this this book is basically them using uh, dubious ish proofs that quote you know i mean this is the original right correct form of christianity and any deviation from us is incorrect actually right it's we're right yeah. and we're gonna retcon half of history to prove it <laughs> the retcon is strong with this one like it could have been written by jj J. abrams yeah <laughs> and of course this is really enlightening because it shows you the roots of the christian persecution complex and especially the evangelical persecution complex i know this history can be a little bit dry but i felt like you needed to understand this background so that you could understand that the ifb literally believe that they are direct heirs to two millennia of persecution death and martyrdom I was taught that the martyrs of the Inquisition were my spiritual ancestors and that one day I very well might be called upon to become a martyr myself. Okay. I mean, teaching teaching kids that they might be called upon to be a martyr, that's wild. I mean, yeah. It's not fun from somebody who's done it. It's not fun. I mean, I can't say I've never heard of that thing happening anywhere in the like. I I definitely know that that happens. You yeah, know, I've with seen indoctrination. That. I've seen yeah. that, that that TV show. Or, that oh you God! Sent me. Yeah, the Hamas children's TV show. God, Oof. but don't remind me. I mean, it, it, it's kind of like that though. Um, but when the IFB talk about. Like literally radicalizing people by saying you might like, you might have to die for God. Yeah. When the IFB, they talk about it in church. One day the government will outlaw Christianity and they will come into our church service with guns and they will tell you that you have to spit on this Bible or die and you need to be prepared to die rather than renounce Jesus. Like they, they believe that and they teach that to their children because they truly believe in their hearts, they are a thousand percent convinced that the times that we live in are just a continuation of the last two millennia of martyrdom and bloodshed. That is completely psycho, man. I mean, like, do do you think that like all these? So all these people, they actually believe it. At I least, think like, a lot of them do. Yeah. So the people that are preaching, or is it like, are some of them just like using it to scare people, just using it to control people? No, I don't see this as a method of control because you're not like, what control are you going to get over somebody by telling them that they need to be prepared for a future event that hasn't happened? You're not asking for any behavior modification now. You're just telling them that this thing is going to happen. I don't see any, any benefit to telling people that as far as trying to control people goes. So I think that these people really believe it. You don't think that, oh, like, well, you need to behave in this way and this way and this way in order to prepare yourself for the possibility of this happening. I wasn't, no, I wasn't really told like any specific actions that we needed to do in the present other than just like, you need to know in your heart that you're committed enough to God that when this happens, you'll be ready. Wow. Like the rapture is used as you better be good because you don't want Jesus to come back and find you doing something you're not supposed to be doing. Cause that would be embarrassing. (laughs) But this wasn't really used in that way that I remember. But I was giving comics, like mostly by Chick, 
um, as a kid to tell me about other little children who were being martyred around the world. And I did, I did feel like the point of these comics and little books and things was to train me to be ready when my turn for martyrdom came. And this is something I really wanted to talk about. I grew up as a pastor's kid. So I remember as a kid having these really vivid mental images and thinking when the men with the guns came to our church one day, they first they would kill my father and I would have to watch that. And then they would kill my mother and I would have to watch that. And then I would also have to refuse to renounce Jesus and I would die too. And that I had to be the brave one because I was the oldest child. So I had to be the one who would go first so that my brothers would hopefully be brave enough to also be martyrs. I had these just incredibly vivid, like like film quality mental images of my body being stacked on top of my family's bodies in the corner of the church auditorium. And I didn't know at the time that that's called having intrusive thoughts because that's what people with anxiety disorders get. Like, I didn't know that when you have like like serious intrusive thoughts like that, that you visualize very clearly and can't get out of your head, that that's like a mental health thing. And that's not an issue. It's just like what it is. But I'm maybe eight years old and I'm, getting in trouble for turning around in church all the time because I'm watching the back door because I don't know when this is going to happen, but I'm convinced that I'm not going to live to adulthood because I'm going to be a child martyr. Wow. And I don't, I'm not saying that this was like the specific intention. I don't think my parents or anyone else meant for me to take it literally that this would happen. I think the message was this could happen. But this is one major reason why I say that growing up in the IFB is just a recipe for ending up with OCD and anxiety disorder and other mental health struggles in adulthood. I mean, that's like a legit radicalization technique. Yeah, that's, and like that that stuff mean. sticks with you. I'm still I'm still very upset by sudden loud noises, specifically booms, bangs, and anything that could be perceived as a gunshot. And I think a lot of that comes from hearing this stuff as a kid. Because you think they're about to bust in and and ask you to renounce Jesus and kill you. Right, because I was constantly on edge about that thing happening for years of my life as a very small child. A couple years ago, so the place, the car dealership where we both used to work, when I still worked in that upstairs office in the service center, before I got my promotion, I I was at my job there and we had a mini fridge up in that office. And someone had put a soda in the mini fridge and the fridge got too cold and the can froze and it exploded. And it made a pretty loud bang. And I sat right in front of the refrigerator in that office. I don't really remember what happened because I had a blackout. I know I screamed so loud that they heard me at the front desk. I kind of came to my senses hyperventilating under a desk on the far other side of the room a few minutes later. And I, I just... I completely blacked out and like came two minutes later because of how badly that scared me. Wow. And I guess this is just like a ramble about my personal PTSD symptoms because I've never, I've never been in a war. I've never been in a situation obviously where guns were actually drawn in church, but being exposed to that kind of ultra violent mental imagery and that kind of uh, glorification of martyrdom as a young kid with an active imagination, that was really damaging to me. And I think people should be more aware of the true damage that can be done when something like that is presented to a child as the truth. Even if the adults in the situation didn't mean to 
presented as this is definitely going to happen because kids have active imaginations and kids take things very seriously. Yeah. And like, so what, I, if adults want to believe that, fine. I don't believe that. But if adults want to believe it, fine. But it, it can really damage kids long term. I mean, I'm talking 20 years after the fact. So did, did they use like Waco and the Branch Davidians as an example? Of- they they used as as an example of it could happen to us too. I don't remember Waco being held up as at all as an example of righteousness or anything. Just as no. like. I wouldn't think that they would because they were pretty. They were not IFB. But I remember kind of hearing like, oh, the government is getting more bold and they're going after these smaller groups. And then one day they'll be able to work up to banning Christianity. Mm-hmm. That was kind of the the message I got from that. Yeah. And at some point, at some point in the future, uh, we are actually going to have an episode where we go through and we talk about uh, uh, Waco and the siege of Waco. Uh, we, yeah. So I think we I want you to watch the the Netflix miniseries. I think I watched the Netflix miniseries, but I'll have to re uh, watch it. Yeah. I really liked that one. Yeah, that was talk about an absolute cluster. F-ing. Holy shit. That, oh. that a lot there's... of people, a lot of people died that didn't need to. That was yeah. That's yeah. I just I I remember last time I watched it, it was maybe early pandemic or maybe even pre pandemic, um, but definitely Chuck was not on the radar. And I remember just sobbing over the little kids dying. And I don't even want to know what's going to happen to me when I watch it again now that I have a kid of my own. Yeah. But did this this shed some light on the whole persecution complex thing for you? Yeah. Well, more than anything, what confused me was that... What confused me was that, like, even some, like, weird, bad, and, like, impossibly inaccurate history book can be used as, like, a tool to brainwash people. Even if it's just like a a strange theology book, this is like... Yeah, I think what I really wanted you to get out of this first was for you to understand that specific doctrines like baptism, not even like should we do it or should we not, but even how it should be done is enough for churches to split off and persecute each other. I think it's really fascinating how seriously this is taken. And I think that sheds light on a lot of modern evangelicals who are politically active I think it makes sense that if they are so zealous about their religious life, then that leads to political zealotry as well, especially in political issues that they perceive to be moral issues. So they're not just like out there being manipulative. They're like literally being honest, but they just suffer from complete paranoid delusion. Yes, I like to use the term sincere, but sincerely wrong. I think sometimes it's just hard for outsiders to understand why these things can possibly be so life or death important. And I think that you you have to understand first that these people think that they are heirs to millions of martyrs. And, and that understanding the theology behind that can help you understand why they take everything so seriously. Huh. I also thought that this might give you like a good foundation about the persecution complex because people like you and I saying happy holidays instead of Merry Christmas, like it seems like such a small deal. But for people who believe that their martyrdom is imminent, it's a scary sign that things are heading that direction. They're still incorrect. But I thought some background on where these fears come from might be helpful. See, that's okay. That's interesting. That's because thinking about because from my background, I mean, we all know the Jews have been like treated like shit through Europe, Middle East, everywhere that they've ever lived, pretty much. But 
I would not say like martyrdom is not like a concept for us. You see what I'm mean? like? Cause you know, the, the, even like these, the Baptists, they're saying, okay, well, what, we're going to be martyrs for, and, and we'll get our rewards in heaven for us. It's all about like, if we celebrate, I mean, we mourn the people who are dead and we celebrate our own survival rather than be like, okay, well, this person died for the cause and the cause is like, you, you see the difference there? Yeah. Cause it's, it's about like surviving and, and like, you're not glorifying yeah. the death. No, you, you wouldn't like death. You know, it's something that you want to try to avoid. And it's something that you're like, you're sad about when it happened to other people or, or, or not like glorify and be like, you have to be willing to do this and that and the other thing. Well, there's a, there's a Christian militancy. I'm, yeah. I'm sure you know the song "Onward, Christian Soldiers." If you think you don't know it, I guarantee you've heard it somewhere. Yeah, it's it's it sounds like meow mix. Yes, right. Okay, <laughs> um, but the, there's there's Christian militancy, and I have not gotten far enough in my own studies to know to be able to tell you where that Christian militancy comes from. I know that there's got to be a root somewhere, huh. and I'm excited to get around to digging it up one day. But you don't have that, and I think evangelism is a factor like the idea that people go to hell if they don't do things our way i think that that this persecution complex is a factor but the the christian life is compared to a battle you're fighting fighting against the devil and fighting against sin and the forces of hell and um even jesus used some battle metaphors when he spoke about different church related or christian christianity related topics i guess Um, that does make sense though yeah, so like that's just not a thing for us, like because you don't have that like the 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 battle metaphor for your entire religion. Well, what we what we have more than anything else is it's just like we we are a people we will endure we will survive rather than because um, because we don't seek to convert out we we don't try to convert outsiders we don't do uh, evangelizing we don't you know try to expand or anything like that that's that's not for us. It's like, that's not, that's just not what our focus is. That's not our MO. But, you know, with Christianity, you know, the whole, the point is, you know, we will, you know, convert the whole world uh, and the whole world will accept Jesus and then the whole world will will go into heaven. Right? Yeah. um, With like standard, that's like standard Christianity. It's like, oh, well, the whole world will directly become Christian and know Jesus. Um, progressive Christianity looks at it more like the whole world will become better people and live out the moral teachings of Jesus. That's better. That's preferable to me, at least. Um, yeah, I mean, that's, that's more the way that I lean. I'm still kind of figuring a lot of that out, but but I'm more lean towards like, like Christianity as in love thy neighbor, christianity as in like give to the widows and the fatherless and like that kind of thing like i i see like the millennium when the world for a thousand years becomes the way that god always intended it to be i see that more as everybody living out jesus's teachings not everybody going to a specific christian church or or living certain living certain rules outside of basic morals yeah fair that's just that's just how I say it. That's sadiology, not theology. Yeah, sadiology. I like it. 
Um, a lot That's... of a lot of people do. So don't tempt me to start my own cult. <laughs> no, although if you did, then you would have like a, a complete handbook. We could start it, uh, art, start it up, write some fake history books, say. Uh, this is what we uh, are basing our religion on, and technically, our uh, our, our spiritual ancestry goes back to uh, the Neanderthals <laughs> in <laughs> and their uh, cave paintings. Um, yeah, if, if I, I would make a good cult leader, but I am I promise I'm I'm going to really try not to start a cult. Why would you want to? It sounds like a lot of work. Well, I just feel like I could get everybody thinking the right thing because I think I'm right about everything. <laughs> I do. I do, too. I'll be like, your, sometimes like, I really feel like I have my together. And if everybody thought like me, it'd be great. See, I, I feel like my uh, my uh, 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 place in this cult would be I would be like a one of the, the minds behind it. But I wouldn't seek the, the throne. I'm not the I'm not the oh, guy. To... See, that disappoints me because I was really thinking you would start a rival cult. No, I couldn't start a rival. cult. Like the thing is that I would if I started a cult and I would get like eight members and then I would just be like, what are you guys doing today? And they'd be like, <laughs> uh, I don't know. But like, let's play some Xbox or something like that's what I would like. I couldn't start a cult because I would just want to hang out. You know oh. what I'm saying? I do like I do not have the energy or the like the I, I, I could I could not be a cult leader. That that's so much work. And I have a yeah. good work ethic, but only if it's something that I'm really passionate about. And I just honestly I couldn't see myself passionate about starting a cult or controlling people. Like I just like I I just can't be bothered to uh, okay, worry well, about other people that much i guess i'll have to find a, a place for you in my cult then yeah i'll be like uh, i'll be like one of the uh i don't one know of, like you... the the minds behind it like one of the strategic like thought mind like thinkers okay okay the what about this it, not what like if the... i'm what if i'm the prophet and then you're like the guy who goes and tells everybody what the prophet said no you don't want to be my enforcer no i i couldn't be an enforcer that's I, true. I, I'm like, nice. Could you see me like beating people up? You don't have, no, we don't beat people up in our cult. Then what do you do? How do you? You know what? I haven't stuff? decided yet. Do you just like shun people? I couldn't do that. No. I would be like, you're shunned, and then I'd see the sad look on their face, and I'd be like, oh, just kidding. You're no, fine. No, we do re-education. That's that's definitely more my speed. Okay. Like, yeah, we like make people sit in front of a TV screen of me talking for like eight hours, and they come out like. The leader is good. The leader is great. We surrender our will as of this date. Oh, you mean like uh, Lester Roloff? That was a Simpsons reference, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, should we get back on our, our, our actual episode? system down? We do. So we, we have now just. Yeah. No, that's Stonecutters. That's not the. That that's is Stonecutters. That's not the cult. Do you want to go back to our actual episode and then we can do an episode later Ooh, on if I now. started a cult, what it would be like? Hover bikes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah okay uh we should do that for an episode we should do an episode where we decide to start our own cult that that sounds awesome i'm gonna put that in our episode ideas folder as soon as i'm done with this okay. recording this episode which has now gone extremely off the rails because yeah, i got emotional really i got emotional talking about martyrdom and then that somehow turned into a joke i'll make it work i'll i'll, I'll fix it and edit okay uh, I did, yeah I did, this I don't know this this whole thing I mean this whole like martyrdom like like we're gonna get you know martyred or whatever that just seems like unfiltered paranoid delusions and that's kind of upsetting (laughs) 
I don't know. Like, so do you have any final thoughts, you know, maybe something that's like uplifting so that I can forget about the fact that literally like tens of millions of Americans believe this. So I don't know if this is uplifting or not. This could, this could totally go either way, but I'm going to take a chance on it. Think about the fact that you have two personal friends who were raised believing this, who have, I mean, you've been able to overcome that level of paranoia and deal with stuff and just become good people. I mean, I, at least I hope you think I'm a good person. And and think of all the hundreds of people in our Facebook group and the thousands of more that are in different stages of recovering from fundamentalism who were raised with this kind of imminent death hanging over their heads. And they're now out there trying to live fearless lives. I really, really wanted you to understand that this persecution complex is not new and that it runs very deep. It's not shallow in any way. But I also can encourage you by saying that there are a lot of us who have been able to move past that and deal with the fears and deal with the anxiety disorders and the PTSD and have happy lives. I'm writing a piece now for the Patreon where I talk about some of my triggers and some of the things that really still get to me, both for end time type stuff and martyrdom type stuff. And I talk about how knowing the roots of these fears can be a crucial part of healing for me. And I think for a lot of people who are like me, like curious and analytical people, I need to go all the way back and relive the trauma and understand not just where this trauma entered into my life, but why it happened to begin with before I feel like there's healing and I can move past like whatever it is that's bugging me. I know some people don't have that experience. I know some more practical and logical people who all they what they need to do instead is not relive any trauma, tell themselves that their fears are not based in reality, show themselves why they are not realistic and move on. And I don't mean to demean anyone else's path to healing, but I, I want to normalize those of us who do need to know not just where our personal fears came from, but literally know hundreds of years of history and understand who perpetrated those fears before we were even born to be able to feel like we can move past them. Like both are good. Either is good. Any way to deal with trauma and get past it and, and live in the now is great. But this is my way of dealing with it. And I know there are other people out there like me. And I do hope this episode was helpful for some of them. You know, I, I guess that is a good note to end on. Because um, one of the things I was thinking about, you know, I, I think... Uh, a couple days ago, uh, somebody posted in the Facebook group that they're just like, this podcast is like 50% uh, uh, healing and 50% PTSD. And did, did you see that one? Somebody, um, somebody yeah, said I that. think yeah. I did. Yeah. So I thought that, uh, you know, we saw that and I was just like, you know what? One of the things that you have to do is that you have to actually like go through and deconstruct the individual pieces of why this is a certain like why like go in and look at what is the the root cause of this what is the uh what are the contributing factors and just look at those and be able to you know see them clearly and sort of see the whole board if, if you know what i'm saying just so that people people you can't just like know that something's wrong but you have to know why something's wrong and why looking at it from a certain outlook is uh, maybe not the best idea and how that changes their whole outlook on life and on everything when they can move past something and when they can stop internalizing something that, that was really pushed on them. Yeah. And I think that's really important for those of us who were raised IFB because like I've talked about a lot of times, 
we were told that you have to know why everything. And you have to know, you have to be able to give somebody five or six, five or six scripture verses in an off-the-cuff sermon about why women shouldn't wear pants. And there's got to be, you've got to know why. Do you know why? Do you know why? And that's so pushed on us that I think that for a lot of us, the antidote is having to learn why not, like why that is not correct. Yeah. I think it's, I think for a lot of us, it's been so pushed on us that we kind of are permanently stuck in that got to know why mode. And the only way to break that cycle is to learn why not. That's totally valid and totally legitimate. Anyway, uh, I think we're going to have to end this episode now. Uh, you can follow our uh, thank you for, for listening to this episode of the leaving Eden podcast. Uh, you can follow us on uh, social media. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at leaving Eden podcast on Twitter at leaving Eden pod. Uh, this is your last chance. If you want to send us uh, your queer emails, uh, <laughs> queer emails. Sorry, if you are a queer, yeah, you are a queer ex fundy, uh, or you know ex IFB or ex something similar. Send us your emails about growing up in uh, whatever group you grew up in, um, and we might read them on the air. And make sure that you include your correct pronouns and your uh, uh, and your name so that we can. Uh, know how to call you properly and send those to leaving eden pod at gmail.com anything else sadie uh uh no i i think that's i think that's it do you want to plug your social media yeah you can follow me on twitter at hell yeah sadie on instagram at sadie carpenter music and on tiktok at sadie carpenter one yeah and you can follow me on facebook instagram twitter and clubhouse at g-a-v-r-i-e-l-h-a-c-o-h-e-n and on the web at npr.org no i'm just joking (laughs) (laughs) that was that was a a staple of my upbringing and in the future you can follow us when we have an npr show (laughs) yeah oh man i would love to be on npr i love npr anyway it's been a good episode it's been a long episode and we hope that you guys all have a nice day bye-bye but old rolling river tide Peeled me into many days No regrets, no confusion There'll be no pollution I'm so thankful I've decided To change my ways I'm so thankful decided to change my ways Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. 
Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.